I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film The Last of the Mohicans through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. Well, it's an absolute joy to welcome my latest guest to this project. Uh, She has already been a part of the One Heat Minute podcast and uh, is is an editor at large um, and and less frequently right now because she's focusing on study and and things around that of that nature, but an editor at large of one of the great, easily one of the best film journals that is online at the moment, Brightwall Darkroom. May I... Uh, pass on a huge welcome to the awesome and incredible and insightful Fran Hoffner. Fran, thank you so much for being a part of this new and mad Michael Mann project that I've asked you to be on. You've been on so many Michael Mann shows, including the Great Blank Check podcast recently. I I just don't know. Um, I I don't think you would have expected that you would have been on this many Michael Mann shows. No, I think that's true, but it's so nice to, you know, come out for a Chicago boy. It's the least I can do for the for the hometown. <laughs> for your home team. That's that's yeah. exactly right. Well, look, um, here we are. We're at the final 12 minutes of The Last of the Mohicans. You talked about Public Enemies on uh, uh, on the Blank Check Pod, and you talked to me about Heat. Mohicans, you know, I know that you're into uh, sort of 18th century novels, so you would be you would be familiar with characters like Cora Monroe, but from sort of a um, a protagonist who's sort of in a court, perhaps. That's um, like yeah. um, um, vying for some kind of power or trying to negotiate with a father that she doesn't want to marry a person or, so, or something like that in a big, you know, sweeping, but very England-fixated um, uh, 18th century novel, perhaps, or that, that region. So I'm dragging you into the French and Indian War, as it's known, in 1757. Um, are you familiar with Mohicans? Because I know that you're sort of sometimes... Ca- there's some ones that have been in your blind spots uh, in, in, in the Michael Mann oeuvre. Mohicans as a film was new to me before yeah. this. But I will say Mohicans, the film score, not new to me. Ah. Um, and that is sort of like where I came into this is like I know this as one of the great 20th century film scores yes and I know a lot of it totally devoid of context of the film (laughs) like um I could have told you it was a period piece and that the music (laughs) it did in fact sound old previously but I don't think I could have told you sort of much more about it but it uh yeah a, a blind spot for me outside of the score 
And you just, was it a writing score for you? Yeah. Writing, writing score, cooking score. I just sort of always have music on. So yes. More often than not, um, just being in my <laughs> being are, in my house, some score is on. You are cooking the living shit out of dinner when that Mohegan score yeah. is on. Can I just say, like, you are multiple onions, <laughs> tears down my face, being like, "This has got to mean something," but I simply don't know what. <laughs> oh, that is so so wonderful, um, and absolutely. Part of why I'm focusing on the final 12 minutes of The Last of the Mohicans is because the movie almost surrenders to the score. Like the score is, you know, it's it's they, t- they talk about it with films like Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Jaws and E.T. A lot of those are John Williams, of course. Um, and they just talk about the movie is not the same without the score. If you had a different score, it just almost doesn't work. Um, and Mohicans is a movie that I think definitely could could have that. Uh, could have that passed onto it because it's so rhythmic. It moves in such a pace and it moves in such synchronicity with that score um, that it's extremely powerful. But I'm so glad to hear that you caught up. So does the movie live up to the score, Fran Hoffner? I'd probably like the score more than the <laughs> film. But I think I think they so they exist sort of symbiotically to each other. So like as you said, like a lot like it all culminates sort of with the score mm. in those final 12 minutes. And I think I would have told you prior to those 12 minutes that a lot of this film is quite expo- exposition heavy, Yes, um, which is the nature of a lot of man's work. And sometimes it works for me and sometimes it doesn't. But I was sort of feeling the weight of it this time around, possibly also because I'm not I don't know. I'm not so ignorant to early American history such that I was like, yeah, I don't need a lot of this explained to me. Like, I think a lot of it would just make sense. Um, but I think so. it's like setting up, you know, a cascade of dominoes in that so much has to be explained so that those last 12 minutes can essentially be pulled off without much dialogue whatsoever. Yeah, without, yeah, and, two lines of and dialogue. And yeah, it surrenders itself to the score. And to the like emotionality of what all these characters have been through. So I think leading up to the ending, I would have, I, I maybe was like sort of not sure how to feel and then was absolutely all in, in those <laughs> final 12. Really just like, you know why I, I am now surrendering myself over. <laughs> I'm going over the cliff, you know, I'm, I'm going just walking off. Go, go, see you guys. I'm out. I'm, I'm taking a swan dive. So what was the, what were the big, what were the big notes for you then? Because I'm really interested. You've always got a wonderful take. So, like, what were the big notes for you that really struck in that in that final sequence? And especially, I guess, the you know the capital R romance of um, of looks and gestures and Alice and Uncas as characters. What 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 really you know that's what sort of leaps out to me. If I thought what Fran might like or be interested in in this, what what were the things that really jumped out at you? Yeah, I love Alice and Uncas, and I love that their budding romance doesn't even really get to a point of establishment. Yes. Um, before it is taken away, which I think like a lesser screenwriter, or a lesser director would have given us more. Yes. But I think we're left wanting a lot from both of them, and that both of their narratives sort of end so tragically in a sense is really poignant and difficult to sit with. And I really, I mean, watching Alice go over the cliff is, um, a really, really, really powerful moment. Yes, 
Uh oh. Could uh, and and the lead up, I think, with Uncas when you when you feel it, it's so uh, you know as as a lot of folks know with one heat minute, my preparation for every episode is like watch the you know the minute in question countless times. And for this for this project, I've just been watching the ending on a loop essentially. And that mm-hmm. moment where Uncas's body literally drags down the cliffside. That yeah. is that that as a choice, as opposed to sending him sailing off um, in this sort of you know um, sort of vainglorious you know dive as many movies do. You know, many, many mm-hmm. action movies have people sort of taking these tumbles and in, in in the most grandiose ways, but seeing him dragged down um, and the lack of ceremony that he's that he's given in in death. Um, I think only feeds into giving Alice's death way more sort of angelic poignancy because she, she just kind of, she makes this really hard choice of like death or ultimately death and pain because the guy who has got blood dripping off his hands and is just sort of moderately lowering a really angry knife um, down and (laughs) beckoning to her, it doesn't really... It doesn't really lend to like, oh, this guy's going to be totally stable. Everything after this is going to be just a scream. Like, yeah. It's going to be totally fine. So that close up, you know, like you said, lesser screenwriters, lesser filmmakers occasionally want to want to surrender to like obviousness um, mm-hmm. where you can just tell a whole story in a gesture. And her, her final close up, Jodie May's final close up in that is just, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty special thing. And I just, I think also... Um, I've been brainwashed by sort of modern (laughs) cinema and the role of women in period pieces is nowadays often sort of inflect a 21st century point of view on their women in the past, which doesn't necessarily line up with the amount of agency those women, women would have had during that time period, Yes, which is a really difficult thing to reckon with because I think there is a sort of knee jerk response of wanting women to take what is theirs, but that's sort of not how society was working back (laughs) then. And it is, it is really tragic that it is like that. But I now sort of like am kind of repulsed when I, when I see sort of like a badass woman in a context (laughs) that would maybe, maybe like not really roll with that. And so I, waffled back and forth watching last of the mohicans because cora you know sort as like the older sister does have a little more agency and i think does get her moment to like fire a gun and it's not particularly like heroic or like showy (laughs) it is done out of necessity yeah but you know, some part of my brain was like, when is Alice going to do something? When is she going to have her moment? And I hate that my brain is so irreparably broken now that I think that women need to have these moments in movies. Um, and is part of why I sort of, I don't know. I'm very moved in female narratives where there's not necessarily a victory because for so many women, there often there are, there, isn't. There isn't. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree from a totally um, male perspective in that I like Alice's portrayal because I think 
it's so slavishly Michael Mann to be authentic. You know, like that's his thing. Mm. And and totally. I often and I often think of I think of me right now in twenty nineteen Australia. Like and I like to think of myself as maybe a tough guy occasionally. Like a a guy who could handle oneself, has done self defense, etc. But I reckon I would be Alice in this movie if I was plucked out of comfortable 20th century living and thrown into the frontier life where a war was going around around me and warriors, you know, <laughs> like literally yeah. from all nations killing people. It's like Alice is deeply authentic in my mind because it's like, what would you imagine a poor, frail girl who's done nothing but like shy off advances and wave fans at guys before to then be thrown into the frontier where yeah. there are multiple war parties, where there are people with guns and tomahawks and like just the, you know, uh, there's no shell shock here, right? There's no shell shock, but like just the, like in a modern context, PTSD of seeing how many people had been scalped, gutted, smashed in the face. You yeah. Know, these really visceral deaths <laughs> yes. because weapons are also like not at the point where you can kill someone from really far away. No. Not at all. It's like it's all very up close and violent and deeply scary. And it would render, I think, many otherwise useful people totally useless. Absolutely. And so that moment at the end is like that's the ceiling of what she can make a choice about. And so I think that's very, very special and very sad. Oh, um, deeply, deeply sad. And And especially because it's like... This is your I love I love exactly what you said. Like within the confines of what she is capable of, this is the absolute ceiling. This is the apex of what she can choose to do. And that's what's even more powerful about it, because it's in her own world she's making this choice. You know, in her yeah. in her own worldview, in her own experience, she makes this choice. And that's the soaring sort of tragedy of it because you just get like and that's you know, it feeds in with the score and, and that's just so powerful about these the arrangements, because there's not really different scores for different characters, but there's certainly different arrangements of the Gale to complement mm-hmm. different characters. And I feel like once Alice is in this moment and we're kind of like being drummed into like her experience with the score and then with the slow motion and, you know, the delicacy of that encircling camera and then she's there, it's like, fuck, this, this poor yeah. girl, this poor girl. And there's nothing for her to say. No. Like it's, there's no point. No, it'd but... be it'd be a waste to um to even sort of address what is happening. And so yeah, I just love that moment and I love the shot of both of them mm. sort of on the forest floor then. And I love that it's not like a gruesome shot Agreed. of them down Agreed. there. It's just sort of like there they are in the land. I was thinking a lot about sort of like the American landscape also watching this because like similarly as a like as a fairly capable person in the 21st century, like if thrown into the past, I would be very useless and very afraid. <laughs> and I think the way that the American landscape is shot here makes it feel really immense and overwhelming um, yes. and sort of all consuming. And for them to just sort of be a small part of that landscape at the end um yeah, it's really beautiful. I was going to say it reminds me of a painting, but I have to remember the painter. There, no, there is a painter, and it's only in the research of this show that I've really been I've deep dived. It's the first that I've ever heard of him. He's a painter by the name of Thomas Cole, and actually does. Um, so T H O M 
uh, A.S. Cole, and he he has actually done renderings from the Last of the Mohicans, like uh, inspired by the Last of the Mohicans novel, and they're characterized by exactly what you just said, which is these really minuscule figures, like in beautifully detailed and and but but in the in the expanse of what's being shown, they're like one tiny portion in the bottom sort of corner of frame. And mm-hmm. then a vista, and then these overpowering and overwhelming mountains and valleys and trees, and and the the, the characters are like skidded across the bottom, um, very isolated and sort of enveloped. And it's really like you know if you talk about Michael Mann taking aesthetic cues from painters and sort of really like riffing on themes that he sees in other pieces of art, like whether he's doing it in music or or, or painting, um, I think he totally nails it with that. And I think there's just something so poignant as well, and. You know, it feels like a real modern, the modern brainwash of like a modern filmmaker showing someone hit the ground there. You know what I mean? They're showing them hit the mm-hmm. deck or they're doing a zoom of like a really, a really, um, uh, a sort of an embarrassingly obvious thing of them like falling in their hands, like touching while they're down in the, in the ravine together, you know, like it just feels like it, it's, it's ripe for one of those moments, but it just doesn't really get it. It's great. It's really good. Yeah. I think of this as being a little bit of a companion piece to public enemies in the sense that I think both are often about landscapes. Yes. And I think the way that the Midwest is shot in public enemies and the sort of stark barrenness to sort of reflect the American depression and sort of like, what else are you going to do? This is where we live. It's flat. It's gray. There's nothing going on. We have to sort of, you know, stealing is sort of what you do to survive in this world. Maybe. He's sort of arguing. And I love that, like, the argument put forth with the landscape in Last of the Mohicans is, like, we are very, very small here. Yes. And this this is really all-consuming. And, you know, these characters have been through this, like, what feels like such an immense emotional toil. And it's just, like, they're also just three people on the side of a huge cliff. And that cliff is going to be around a lot longer than they are. Oh, yeah. There's There's a beautiful shot. That just get it's one of those like gets you every time shots of, um, and it's kind of so I don't know if it's slowed down or whether sort of Daniel Day Lewis sort of gracefully exits out of shot. It's just at the coda of the the battle, and he embraces Cora and they hug, and he starts walking away, and his face is featured sort of in profile against this big rock face, and in mm. the rock there's all these veins which like look like you know sediment over many hundreds of thousands or potentially millions of years cut. Like there's, you know, the mountain face has been sheared off and you kind of get to see the cross section of what this thing looks like. And every time I see him go past there, I'm just like, oh, like, you know, we're not even a speck of dust. We're not even like one millim- one uh, identifiable layer of the amount of time that that mountain has existed behind him. I think that's the whole beautiful point of this sort of, you know, this last of movie, the last act of this movie the last of nature of the characters the last of literally in title of the movie it's um it's it's yeah people passing through being made to feel really small and insignificant and their worlds are you know their battles are huge while they're on it but in the grand scope of like the the, the expanse of the universe they're just they're just passing through yeah absolutely and i thought about that a lot also during the battle scene way earlier than these last 12 minutes y- yes, but yes. the way that the logs, the like walls of these forts just explode. Like they're useless. They're absolutely useless. And to like 
compare, you know, where Fort Building was at in the 18th century, <laughs> just like compared to the landscape. And it's like, this is this is all, you know, like bits of like Tinder, like, of course, it's, <laughs> it's exploding, but like, this is going to get better. And this is going to take over. Like, it was, um, it was very funny just to see how like, poorly fortified these, like, embankments were <laughs> yeah they're, they're, they're like literally doing their best but then a certain level like they said once they bring these big explosives in they just crumble like you know waterlogged like it's like a cake you know it just like yeah. falls apart and it's mm-hmm. it's so powerful and also i think what, what you're talking about there is like you get this stream of soldiers they're all armed to the teeth they're all exiting this and they go through that valley and you know the fragility of like you see all these fortified guys all these guys with guns and you just see like when the woods are around them this is like what plagues you in great horror movies that are set in these you know these time periods and things like that um and even the early hammer horrors and things like that is that the wilderness on the outside contains the unknown like it contains what you don't know and like this big grassy sunshine expanse is where you're all happy and everything's you know everything's safe um, and then as soon as those, you know, you see that first screaming Huron soldier, like, you know, stream out of the woods into the darkness and into the ranks, it's just like, uh-oh, Every, yeah. everything around you is going to eat you, <laughs> you know, in a figurative mm-hmm. sense, you know, it's, it's, it's terrifying um, and gives you that same feeling of like, oh, this is all just, this is all just superficial. <laughs> it's all going to get squashed. Very yeah. Easily. Yeah, and like get out of there. <laughs> like you're not doing a good job. Like file file this under sort of a genre of film that's like having a bad time on vacation. Oh. You know, I know like colonizing isn't really vacation, but it is sort of like get these get these get the British out, get the French out. Um I thought a lot about uh one of my favorite movies the last few years, The Lost City of Z. Mm, um movie. while watching this and just sort of the way in which like it feels watching that movie that the jungle is just going to come for us all. Yes. Just it's just like, waiting. It's just waiting to envelop everything. It's just being yeah, held just, at bay constantly. No idea sort of what you're walking into. And so like my case is like, why walk into it? That's well, that's like that's my <laughs> perspective. I also just very recently watched sunshine for the first time Great movie. and watching that. I had never seen it. I loved it, but I was like, third act, third act is iffy. Unlike Mohicans third yeah. act is iffy, but the, the first act- two, the first two acts of sunshine are maybe some of the best space movie acts ever. Incredible. But like the issue with the third act in that movie is that the movie's already scary. It yes. doesn't have to get scarier. Correct. And that watching that film, I was like, it's fine that we're not spending more time in space, actually. Like, I don't actually think this is good for us. <laughs> and similarly with all these sort of, like, movies about colonization and exploration, I'm like, oh, no, 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 we don't have to do that. Like, let's just not. Let's not do it. Uh, seems obvious now. <laughs> oh, so good. So good. The world, But, like, yeah, the, you're, you're exactly right. It's like, and, and these guys, they, you know, I want to touch back on something that you just said, which is like, it is like a vacation gone bad movie in that you've got Uncas, you've got Hawkeye and you've got Chingachgook who are literally just passing. They are actually passing through. Like Mm -hmm. it just so happens that on their road, instead of a pit stop, there's a war and, 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 and people in distress who they decide that they're going to take a quick digression from their trip. They have no intent on participating. And so it's just one of those wonderful things that really rings true to me even more is like there are things like we think about them in terms of like wars that are happening in other countries and civil wars and unrest and things like that where you're like, oh, like that's not where I live. 
And I just imagine what's so funny and about the sort of, and you, you would absolutely know more about this as sort of as being as well researched as you are as like of, of like literally people of, of nations on the same land. Cause at that time in 1757, it is like multi multinational, you know, native American tribes, plus these two massive colonial powers, plus this emerging, you know, United States, you know, proto United States, um, uh, settlers, and these guys from this really small and now like you know dwindling nation of um, of tribes, people are just like I'm out. Like I don't care what they're fighting about. It's not got not not got anything to do with me. They just happen to be fighting the same jungle that I'm going to go through. So I just love that. It is definitely that. But I have never thought about it as a vacation because you do not want to <laughs> vacay anywhere where these guys are <laughs> unless they have amenities. Yeah, yeah, and I just I also think like. I love the sort of note that it comes down on with colonization mm. and the sort and the sort of inter Native American strife that is occurring, mm. where I think it is um, that the um, I forget who says it to Magua about sort of like you're going to take all of the sort of strategies used by the white colonizer and turn them against Native Americans. Like, is that the strategy here going forward of sort of adopting these really like aggressively violent and toxic battle strategies in order to gain an upper hand? And like, what, what is the point of that? What is the point of any of this? And I, I was almost sort of stunned that that was said, not so much that it was rejected, but, to see the way in which like really awful cycles of violence replicate themselves in communities and the way that like, and part of like, them started survival, right? Because that's what he's ultimately yeah. doing in, in his perverted mind at that point. Or, and I don't mean perverted because he's a perverse guy, but I mean like perverted by the situation. It's sort of infected by, you know, the environment um, is, well, if we do this, we'll survive rather yeah. than if, we if we if we stick to what our what we're going to do we're just going to be exploited so it's like for him there's no difference between well there's it's there's only a sheep or a fox in a way right mm-hmm. it's like it's only, i'm only gonna i'm gonna be a predator or i'm gonna be prey and there's literally nothing in between there's no diplomacy and obviously when you're talking to the end of a, a musket or a tomahawk for that matter it's not exactly like there's any diplomacy but yeah it's 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 an underappreciated and look for me as an outsider, complete outsider. You, you as an American and someone is well research would have like way more of an understanding. But I, the 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 delicate touches in this movie for me is like I'd have to go and research to know like exactly that period, exactly those those you know those those foundational battles that time and get more of an understanding because it's just not not as uh, dr- drilled into me or in or, or as consumed by me as i'd have to research more but i just i also love the way that michael mann operates in that even the obviousness that he goes about saying you know oh that that guy was a mohawk like duncan um uh, steve waddington's character go as a mohawk and then hawkeye Dan- Ellis's character goes he's no mohawk he's huron but for all mm-hmm. of us who've got outsider eyes like how the hell do we know what a huron is versus a mohawk like i don't know any like i don't know what their markings are i don't know what they're i don't know if they look different i don't like i don't i can't speak their language like i don't know any of that stuff so that's what i also like about this is that there's there's all these things going on in the the that are very you know that seem like they could just be simply superficial but they're actually you know deep research they're anchored in 
historical truth and you sort of end up having this great you know the rewatch value then for me like goes up and up because you just like the detail is all there for you to just keep diving into yeah and i imagine you know as quick as i am to sort of complain about exposition i'm sure there's like way more to get out of it which (laughs) with each sort of subsequent watch when i'm not just like sort of trying to parse like what i need to know for character development versus what what has just been put into this um yeah. Yeah, I, I look, you like every, like everything and I and and I'm completely biased which people know um yep. at this point, but I, I think all Michael Mann movies because of the way that they're thoroughly researched and the attention to detail they're always worth another watch. Even Blackout, yeah. even The Keep. Um and mm-hmm. I'm not you know all, all those movies are all worth something because I think you know to your point hearing you talk about something like Public Enemies or to read Niall Schwartz's monograph on Public Enemies or hear you know, people even just talk about the, you know, sometimes your knee-jerk reaction to like a period movie that's shot in digital and things like that, how you can sort of, it starts out being grading. It's like there's something about it that just does this thing on your consciousness for, I don't know about you, it's like some movies, they just get you in the like irritating, like scratching, like it's mm-hmm. like something scratching at the back door of your house, you know, it's like, it's like, I need to watch that movie again. Like there's just something that just gnaws at you. I think that's that that great quality in a lot of his movies that they kind of gnaw at you to watch them again. You think about a certain element, you start ruminating on it for a bit and you're like, God, what? I I have to do that again. I have to watch that again. And it's like this movie, when I hear the score, uh, which is your first experience with this movie, when I hear the score, I saw the film before I heard the score or like, you know, saw it and heard the score in the, in the same viewing. Um, Whenever I hear it now, I think about the ending. I think about the way the ending soars with that score. And it, yeah, it's, it's impossible for me to separate the two. They're just it's just so so completely perfect to strip it away and turn it into visual storytelling. You know, here's here's a tutorial on how to tell a story visually. Yeah. And just like uh, several like really beautifully crafted action or like fight sequences yes. that are also I don't know, like violent without being gratuitous. Yes. And and serious without being melodramatic. Yes. Um, I think you genuinely believe as you watch that like these, these lives are at risk. And like, I really felt as though, um, anything, anything could happen in that final stretch. Yes. Because essentially, you know, when we've got this, we start with the trio and now we've got our whole six people. And then when Duncan dies, it's like, all bets are off. Like when he gets strung up and Hawkeye does that mercy kill, you're like, oh, this movie will do anything. I do not know mm-hmm. who's going to live or die by the end of this. I'm hoping it's Daniel Day-Lewis, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't. Yeah. Duncan is like on Duncan is really a fascinating character and Isn't that's he? who I sort of want to come back for. Um he's great he, and he will be the character that you do come back for because and again in his performance Steve Waddington, a terrific performance, absolutely mm-hmm. outstanding. Um and and he plays the dick so well. Like you really need like, yeah. that guy to be a dick and 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 be all about his station and be all about his status and be all about his class. Um, but in the shifted paradigm, when he starts to just like when he when that all gets sort of shaved away, and it just becomes about a morality play. Um, he becomes like a deeply fascinating and then deeply, um, uh, you know, you can a sympathetic character. And then in that moment when he sort of you know. The, in that quick pace and quick, 
change up of that translation to sacrifice himself to give Cora, you know, to give Hawkeye to Cora to do the right thing Amazing. for her is just like Amazing. Um, I, I, will I, was... sh- I will share with you, Chris Tapley is um, uh, the, the great uh, recovering journalist and creative, um, has, has definitely said he wants Team Duncan t-shirts to be printed. <laughs> so if, 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 if we do need a Team Duncan and Team Hawkeye t-shirts, I think I will send one of those to you, Miss <laughs> Randolph. No, yeah, we're all on the I Team Duncan. Be... Well, here, here are my two thoughts on this. One... I watched I watched part of this movie with my friend and fellow critic Emma Stefanski, and at the midway point, she sort of pointed out um, a very stark similarity between um, Duncan and Commodore Norrington from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which were very influential on me when wow. I was sort of a preteen. And we were like, Duncan really walks so Commodore Norrington could run. <laughs> it's probably really the other way around, all things considered. Uh, but it is, that is, that um, is a great that is a pull. trope. Yeah, this is all, this is all Emma, but it's sort of like all I see in that. And I think that is such a fascinating trope you don't see a lot of, which is the like, I don't know, the stick in the mud, like military man who is clearly experiencing like a moral crisis throughout. Yes. Um, it provides such depth to that kind of character and is such an interesting, like unpacking of masculinity and obligation. And the second she said that, that just really unlocked that character for me. And so now I feel like I need to like really go back and, and watch him. Yeah. He's, Um, he's wonderful. That's a great thing about Hawkeye and Cora is that they have the same haircut. So, what are you going to do about that? I thought of, I thought about that a lot, especially in these last twelve minutes. When I think, I don't know, the way the humidity was that day really sort of <laughs> sinks up their hair. And I was like, this is incredible. Like, how often do you get to fall in love with someone with the same hair as you? Oh my god! And 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 in and some people have pointed out in the final embraces that they have, like whose hair is whose. You will never. You don't know. know. You can't you know. tell. And I was like, "Does this open up like a whole queer reading of the movie?" I don't know. That's like really projecting. But I was like, "Oh wow, this is really about finding the person with the same hair." Oh my as goodness! You. Daniel Day Lewis's hair has caused more men to make horrendous hair decisions for themselves than any other man. I, I'm call, I'm putting it out there because every time I see his <laughs> hair in this movie, I want to make bad hair growth decisions and then I just come back to earth after a few months and go, no, stop it. Stop yourself, Blake. Stop now. You're never going to have that perfect a, a, a hair without a stylist. Oh, man, that's hilarious. Well, a stylist and, like, access to sort of, like, I don't know, Virginian humidity. <laughs> like, there's a lot. There's so much there's at so play. Much going like, on. I'm sure he's not washing it, which is really helping the curl. But I think the <laughs> I don't know. I would love to know about that routine. I don't have fully dissimilar hair, so I'm I'm interested to learn more. Oh, my goodness. Well, I don't think that there's a better way to end than uh, no, I the, don't think so either. <laughs> than, than, than on on us yearning to know the hair routine of Daniel Day Lewis in uh, the Last of the Mohicans. Fran, you're the best. Thank you so much for doing the show again. Oh my gosh, thank you, Blake. Thank you. You're the best. Was the amazing Fran Hoffner once again of Brightwall Duck Room and all around the interwebs. Absolutely blessed to have her. And look. Incredible guests that we have on this show just keep on coming and none more so than my next wonderful guest. I'm about to introduce him. Here he is, Chris Tapley. Woo! 
finally he's he's recovered not recovering he's a recovered <laughs> awards journalist for variety and just a, a wonderful all-round podcaster and personality in film uh film internet culture since its very beginnings and now he's a creator and it's my distinct pleasure after talking to him in one of the final episodes of one hit minute podcast he was mad enough to join me on this mad pursuit once again <laughs> it is none other than the awesome chris tapley chris welcome back so much uh to another man podcast i, I told you i was never going back but i'm like neil <laughs> here you I'm are like neil right i'm in the tunnel i had myopic vision yeah. and it just my programming I, I i had to come back well this one's this one's pretty uh enticing it talk is. about these 12 minutes you know so but thanks for having me back i'm really stoked appreciate it so where does where's Mohicans where's Mohicans in your conceptions we know if anyone had had listened to our previous episode I'll make sure I put the link in the description so you can hear um, and I'll put some timings in but you know Chris as a person seeing heat saw it was like this is what this is what I wish that I could feel to make this is what I how I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker this is you know mm-hmm. one of one of his all-time favorite movies is heat and and particularly in 90s uh you know and, and the 90s is just crazy like it's just it's just so many <laughs> like pound for pound uh, an incredible decade across the, don't get the, me started the, the landscape we won't get too far into it today but um I, I would just say you hit Mohicans at 92 this was actually the first Michael Mann movie I'd ever seen I didn't know it was a Michael Mann movie at the time um I think my dad was really into it and uh I didn't see it at the cinema with him but I definitely saw it on home video and it was on pretty much um pretty regular on Australian TV absolutely adore this film continue to adore it continue to be blown away that it's under two hours um or you know depending on the about that today when i looked at it again yeah (laughs) and so where where does it fit for you in your in your love of michael mann in the 90s chris uh it's funny like i'm trying to remember you hear a helicopter probably going over my house they're (laughs) dumping water on brush fire behind me los angeles everybody uh but yeah I, i i'm trying to remember when i saw it um it was one of those. It was kind of pop culturally big. Like it was yeah. bigger than Heat, Much you know, bigger. in terms of like you know, it was this big romance and this big studio romance, and so you had the big. I just it's one of those movies I remember the trailer because yeah. you, you would see it constantly, and yeah. and so I, I I'm sure I saw it before I saw Heat without knowing who this filmmaker was, you know, um, yeah. and then having seen Heat and then been like, oh, the guy he he did Last of the Mohicans. Oh, that's interesting, you know, just. <laughs> awakening with your film awakening or whatever but uh but yeah i guess i probably would have seen it like we rented it blockbuster one of those deals yes you know i don't know but i love it i mean it's i think that streak that is like unbelievable i mean mohicans heat insider ali collateral i mean come on (laughs) yes it's just that kind of pace maintaining that kind of pace is insane Maintaining that pace, even just for the decade, you know, I know you're a 90s yeah. guy. So you look at 90s and you're like, ah, you know, there, there aren't many other streaks in the 90s that are as good as, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe the, there are others, but they're so insane that you go, well, there's Reservoir Dogs and then Fiction and then Jackie Brown. Yeah, and you're yeah. Like, I mean, this, and, one, this and one's that, probably underrated as streaks go, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. People probably don't, you know, consider that the... You look at Mohicans and, and it's like, how is that not like a multiple Oscar winning movie? Like, like it's kind of like it's, it's, got Daniel it's right Day in that Lewis. wheelhouse. It's got Daniel Day-Lewis. It's got Wes Studi after he's been in Dances with Wolves, which was a complete mm-hmm. and utter Oscar darling. You've got this 
loaded cast where you've got like Pete Postlethwaite just hanging about as like it's a glorified speaking <laughs> extra. Like that's how powerful this 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 uh, collective of people is. And it's just like a powerhouse movie, super entertaining, super digestible. It's not an epic, like a, it is a grandiose epic, but it's not epic in scale. Um, the score is just unbelievable. It's action-packed, it's romantic, it's engaging. It's a remake of a classic, like it's a, you know, a remake of a classic that's been remade ad nauseum. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those weird ones that all the ingredients are there, but just none of the alchemy of people pushing it into that zone happened. It's funny, it, yeah. It's this it's a remake, and obviously a, a, based on a, this classic novel. I don't know the story outside of Michael Mann's movie. I've never read the book. I've never seen the other movies. No. It's it's this weird, like I guess, blip in my kind of cultural understanding. Like for me, Last of the Mohicans is a Michael Mann movie. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. So, the original like 1930s one, I think I've seen mostly in clips because I could never get mm-hmm. my hands on like a whole copy of the the uninterrupted movie. I've seen it in clips and that's the thing that gets it across and then there's also some sort of wonderful um criticism of uh James Fenimore Cooper's later, you know, people reflecting on his take of like, well this is the noble savage. It's just such a right, right, limiting right. view of Native Americans and then you get Michael Mann who's like making this rich nation of multiple people, of, of multiple peoples, of multiple sort of political oper- operating rhythms and, you know, different motivations and playing in, esp- you know, sort of old-timey espionage and all that fun stuff that this movie does so well. Um, yeah, totally. We talked about the end of what I think is the great, you know, what I think is one of the greatest movies ever made, and, uh, and you would agree, and that ending being just so unbelievable, an, an ending that's in pursuit as well but i think um there's something really profoundly special about the end of mohicans and i'd love to hear you talk about just how this movie that is so loaded that's such an incredible <clears throat> epic that you know uh, has a lot of really meaty and straight to the point dialogue just basically falls away and becomes a silent movie with you know mm-hmm. um with with the sound of the action unfolding um to tell this massive climactic story where the hero essentially you know lets his father pass through pass the baton and have this rivalry fulfilled in a way that probably no one was expecting just a completely ballsy and crazy ending such a badass moment too um it's 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 funny i have like an interesting connection to the movie in that i grew up in north carolina yes in town called salisbury which is just north of charlotte in the middle of the state and this was shot in Chimney Rock, which is in the Appalachian Mountains of, of North Carolina. And, you know, we, I grew up going up there and, and checking, you know, this beautiful, beautiful stunning, country. Like, country. North Carolina, despite its horrific politics, is one of the most beautiful states in the country. <laughs> and I, I always loved that it, it, it so elegantly captured that. And, you know, <clears throat> movies are often about, like, situating character and environment, you know? and yes. This movie, and especially this sequence, does that right from the big, you know, swell of the gale when it's sweeping across the mountains. And then it's just these people are situated in their environment, in this rugged environment that's like literal rock waiting to be chiseled into, you know, something. <laughs> yes. You know, like it's just this sense of like America making itself and just the the, the kind of awfulness of it as well. And, 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 <clears throat> It, it, and the way it plays out as a silent film is a great way to put it because it's all of the elements are so, cinem, of cinema are on display here. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's again the Gale, the song which I believe Michael Mann's wife suggested to him. She did. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I in my research for this, I I heard, and then he sort of bought the rights to it and gave it to Trevor Jones and was just like. Yeah. Here it is, my Take- friend. This is the toolkit with which you're going to work <laughs> for this Absolutely. entire movie, right? In every it's almost like a disappointing when you find out that it's not original. Yeah, <laughs> but it's yeah. it's such a great like melody, and and he turns it into such a soaring work. And uh, you you know your heart's in your throat the whole time you watch this sequence. For me, like I just yeah. it's 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 hugely emotional. Um, just the various kind of glances and silent looks, especially around the the, the death of of uh, Uncas and, and and Alice. Uh, that that moment when 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 it's like a portrait of Alice when she kind of the camera's cranked down and there's slow motion going on and she's turning to the camera. There's like this. It's I love that because it's like this moment within the moment. Yes. It's like this little bubble, this little air pocket of just like sorrow and just. God dripping with feeling, you know, <laughs> and it's in the way it's and, shot there. It's like a different lens on her, and again the slow motion of it all strips from the waterfall behind her head. Yes, it's, yes. You never he forget. He slows it down right there in such an interesting way, and I love the shot of of Magwell slowly lowering the knife, little insert, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, and and, and, and yeah, it it all leads up to this badass showdown between him and Chingachgook and and. Hawkeye kind of holding the guys off with the rifle and it's like, no, this fight's about to go down. <laughs> and it's it's just like so badass. And it's you know, the you know the shot, the profile tweeted it earlier, the, yes. the profile of the two of them, you yes. know, facing each other. I mean, that's we I said in with the Heat podcast that, that shot at the end deserves to be put on a wall. This shot deserves to be put on a wall. Yeah. It's like amazing. And I mean it's 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 I don't know, I don't even I find it hard to talk about this one because it's like you just start spouting off like superlatives about it, <laughs> you know. But uh, but the but, but the construction of it and the craft of it. I, I was also when I was watching it earlier. The sound effects are phenomenal. You hear what that knife is doing to Uncas. You 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 hear it's. Br- the- and I don't think anyone. You know, we're t- we're so familiar now, like twenty nineteen, nearly twenty twenty, with glorious blu-ray transfers or beautiful 4k you know digital prints where you get something re-released and you just like it's it's shown in its all true magnificence or a brand spanking new 35 mil print gets restored or whatever mm-hmm. but you, when you watch that scene now and you know you see and you register what i think is like dissatisfaction from magua and disgust like it's firstly it's like for a guy who's had such bloodlust up to that point he doesn't want to be doing what he's doing to Uncas, but he's doing it. It's reflexive. But when mm-hmm. that blood, like blood sp- splats on his face, like if you've watched that on TV mm-hmm. or VHS, you've never seen blood hit his face, even DVD. When you <laughs> see it on 4K Blu-ray or like or, or an amazing transfer or just even Blu-ray, like a beautiful Blu-ray transfer, you see blood hit his face and him be disgusted. And it's just, it's it's a really... You know, we've seen a guy's heart get cut out earlier on in the movie, and that doesn't even register nearly, which was one of the most controversial scenes of the movie. That doesn't register a blip compared to the intimacy and the and and his disgust at what he has to ultimately do. And yeah, it's, it's just no, really, totally. really, really, really crazy special scene. Much like the end of Heat, with the with just there's so much acting happening right here in the face, you mm. know, uh, there, there, there's so much happening in, in reaction and, uh, 
just like the just the well of of emotion that's behind the eyes and uh you know it, it plays out in such a way that it's a great opportunity for the actors i think this is not a typical like you know action climax no i mean there there are numerous story beats playing out in this sequence you and, know uh and how good just how good is Wes studi to be magua to be magua in that moment there's so much that happens in that couple of moments lead up where he has to you know he's this guy that's railing against the future like he knows that the you know he knows that the people that uh, are around him he knows that the 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 british and the french he's trying to adopt mm-hmm. their ways in some way to survive because he just knows that his mm-hmm. entire future is dependent on ultimately either adopting the way that they're acting as they're building this country from underneath the native americans or to die to to go extinct and so mm-hmm. he's he's having to abandon the people that he loves so much he's having to go out on his own he's having to pa- pass through when he's trying to link them for the future and so he's he's got the, all that stuff going on as well as just being him as well as being that great actor it's like you know the, it's the Wes Studi show in the in this last in this ending too mm-hmm. because you know you've got Daniel Day-Lewis who's arguably one of the greatest method actors of all time and then Wes Studi is just mm-hmm. he's out like the ending is Wes's like he's outshining everyone here until he meets Chingachgook even when he does meet him it's yeah. so profound and, and, and transcendent in those exchanges they're just not saying a word. Yeah. They're just looking at each other. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I I, I uh, was mentioning I had interesting connections to the movie. The <laughs> there was a guy I went to high school with. This is random. He he. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I grew up in North Carolina. It was, it was somewhat in the country. And uh, one of these guys I went to high school with, his family has like a ranch. Uh, it's like a petting zoo kind of ranch thing. And and they donated a number of the animals that were used at the beginning. Like like uh, during the hunting sequence and stuff, yes. and a number of other animals I think in the movie too, like to th- that were used in the movie. The, I, I knew that guy, and I knew somebody else who like worked in costumes and thought Michael was like a maniac. <laughs> 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 but you, you tend to hear that sometimes. But like, uh, where did I meet him? I think I met him on like a film school shoot or something. He was doing costumes for some period piece, and he was like, "Yeah, I did Mohicans." It's one of these grizzled dudes. It's got like a costume truck that he <laughs> drives around. And, rents it out but it's just funny i've got these little connections to the movie but uh and they literally yeah, chopped I, they literally cut a massive hole in the north carolina forest um and cl- made a clearing and built a fort out of the wood that they chopped down um i think it's wolf <laughs> wolf kroger is the um was the production designer and yeah just said mm-hmm. look michael needed a fort we need to build three sides of it and we you know we need to make a clearing why would we ship in other wood we just literally chopped it down and built it as if they you know, as if we're building a real mm-hmm. fort, which then was that insane, you know, crazy uh, and just be- absolutely beautifully constructed, like battle sequence, really immersive battle sequence. Yeah. Once you once you get past the them crossing the lake and they get into that fort, and you see the mm-hmm. French and you see the Brits and you see the pacing, it's just oh, amazing. Yeah, I wish I had time. I I literally I just watched the the ending this time. I didn't have time to go back and watch the movie again, although I know it well. But I wish I had time to dig into it again because there's there's so much going on throughout. Um, it's not just an adaptation of that book. It's not just a representation of that point in history. I mean, he's he, he's digging in his bag of tricks to pull up uh, a, a lot of interesting character dynamics, character work from these actors. And uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name that plays Duncan. Oh, I've got it right here. 
It's um, What's his name? His name is Steve Waddington or Stephen Waddington, Major Duncan Waddington, Hayward. Yeah. He's so good. He just disappeared super, off the face of the earth. Super unsung. Yeah, like he's super unsung in this movie. Like that guy. He has a thankless that, role that, and he executes it with such incredible, like incredible dedication. Like he's like, I have to be the heel to this guy. Like I, I've just got to, I've got to suck it up and be the butthead of this movie. You know, the but, person, but a hero. But I a mean, hero. It's like end. you he can be the smarmy guy that like is like the third wheel in the love triangle or something. And but but like to 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 be able to really just maintain that sense of like weight that when he dies, you're like, man, that sucks. He yes. went out like a fucking champ, though. <laughs> I mean, because yeah. because you know because he took like literally. Talk about taking one for the team. Took one for the team in yeah. the most... Proves the... his love. Proves yeah. his love, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, it's the most romantic moment of the movie, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Did you tell him? I did. I did. <laughs> like, that, that, that little... That, that great exchange where Hawkeye's like, take me, you know, a death... You know, a, a death... My a death, death would be is a great, great honor. honor. It was a great honor to the hero, take me. And then he, he the, the, the immediate translation... Underneath, did you tell him? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, that's. I don't know if that's like a device that's been used in the movies before, if it's a device in the book at all. But that's pretty compelling cinema, oh. <laughs> you know, when you're watching this but reading that, and uh, it's 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 not that great like, moment. It's, Again, it's a movie full of great moments. It's done. It's done. I think it, I feel like it's done more in comedy, but in this movie, it like it's really deeply effective. Mm-hmm. It's really deeply effective, especially because in an earlier moment in the film where Margot faces off with Duncan, he, you know, where he criticizes the way that he's lying down to his women. And then he's like, sorry, mm-hmm. what did you say? And he goes, Margot understands English very well. Very well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's yeah. like, there's a couple of moments like that in this movie, but this one obviously is played at its most profound, which is probably why, why I, I have delved into this project not missing that moment because I feel like the ending, I feel like even the, the Huron Sasham, like who, who does know, he probably does know how to speak English as well is, and, and, and is hearing Hawkeye say one thing and Mm -hmm. then in English and then is hearing it translated in French as something different and has this all knowing gaze like, yeah, take him. (laughs) Yeah. Take him. And, uh, I just, there's just that, you know, mini, mini drama, the last bit of dialogue, obviously loaded with complete drama. And then that, I mean, is there anything more disturbing than, I mean, there's a couple of really disturbingly violent things, but is there anything more disturbing than him burning alive on that? Like, man, the way they shot, all of that is just, isn't it just something? You feel it. Oh. You feel it, for sure. And uh, and again, the the release in the end with the gunshot is, uh, I, I love it too because I was looking at that moment again and, and there's that one last moment where she looks at him, she yeah. she knows she's looking at him for the last time. Again, I think it's the most romantic moment of the movie. <laughs> Maybe people don't realize that. <laughs> it is. It, look, it is. It is. And uh, it, it. I mean, look in competition. Team Duncan. Team. <laughs> team Duncan and Team Hawkeye. And I'm Team Duncan all the way. <laughs> oh my God! I wish I had some t-shirts. t-shirts. We need some t-shirts. <laughs> That's the, the. If the internet can do anything for us, let's get us some team. You know, you got. You can do the colors the same as what the, these guys are wearing. You know, a nice British officer red, and then like a sort of muddy, you know, uh, um, uh, frontier brown for Team Hawkeye. 
Um, but yeah. yeah, no, it's it's really magnificent. Speaking of Team Duncan, speaking of the romance, how good is Madeline Stowe? Like, where is Madeline? Where is a Madeline Stowe in 2019? Like, someone who is well, I, just that good. I don't know. That beautiful. I mean, that she, striking. I always thought it was funny she was married to Brian Ben Ben, of all people. <laughs> really? Do you know who that know. is? No. <laughs> No. Brian Benben. He was the he was the lead on Dream On. There was an old HBO series called Dream On. Never heard of it. And then he was he was in a movie with Dolph Lundgren. I think it was called uh, it was like an alien invader kind of movie called uh, I Come in Peace or something. And 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 at the end the guy shoots at him and he says I come in. He keeps saying I come in peace. I come in peace. And then at the end Dolph Lundgren says and you go in pieces. <laughs> anyway, total aside. Brian Benben uh, married Madeline Stowe. I always thought that was interesting. Great actor, but she is amazing. Uh, she's she's yeah, like uh, it's one of those classic faces. Um, that that whole thing. I mean, when she runs out and she sees Alice leap to her death, and that that I've always thought that moment was weird because of the eye line, but in an interesting way. Yes, because it's like looks kind of like pans half the screen. Yes, with her head, and it's like that's interesting. But just it's almost just the shock takes her over, and the 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 tears pooling in the eyes. I mean, it's it's. You got to have a face that can carry a lot of emotion, I think, to pull off what she's done. I don't know who would be her kind of corollary today. But you look at her, if you look at her 90s lineup, like especially at that, especially in those moments, you've got Shortcuts, Mm -hmm. you've got Mohicans, you've got, well, there's... What was the Ray Liotta movie? Yeah, uh, there's 12 Monkeys... She's in the general's daughter as well, which is another um, another late '90s one. Uh, what's she's in Two Jakes. She's in and what's that? Two Jakes is 1990 exactly. Um, and then she's in We Were Soldiers, and then she's just kind of out. She's in a couple of TV shows, Revenge, the TV series. She's in the movie Revenge in 1990, but you know a lot of Unlawful the big work is done. Entry, that's the movie I was thinking. Of. Yeah. Blink. That that was the movie where she uh, she played a blind woman. Right? Yes. Yeah, that was a great movie. So great that took a lot of you know a, a lot of her resources. <laughs> Michael Apted, I think, directed that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I always say when it, when it's like what happened to so and so, I'm like, you know who she is. That means that she did really well, and she's done. Like, come on, like let people <laughs> give retire. Her a ch- let her let her retire. Like, give her a chance. I'm like, I can't even hate when people are just like, I'm done. I'm out. No, but she's fantastic in this. She's per- I don't I couldn't imagine this movie with anyone else in it. No, no, it's one Actually, of those in that role. I don't know, and and it's funny. Bonnie Timman, um, uh, who's Michael mm-hmm. Mann's you know, long term casting um, director, mm-hmm. said that Michael had a very specific um, type in mind to match, like matching um, uh, Daniel Day Lewis's character and 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 Cora's character. So like making sure that whoever once he'd cast Daniel it was like, I need a very specific powerhouse person, but also with the hair and there's sort of a visual match that's going on with those two that he wanted to keep for the contrast with Uncas and Alice and 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 particularly mm-hmm. Duncan. Who's going to match between those two? Who's going to look like the perfect contrast for Duncan? And the perfect match for Hawkeye in that regard, and 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 sort of making sure this just wanted some of those fun little visual choices that you make um, with that. But yeah, look, it's undoubtedly one of the great. I mean, one of the greatest, one of the greatest streaks of the nineties. I mean, you're. I'm deferring to your knowledge of the nineties here. There's pretty much the. Greatest I'm trying to think of that. Like who? I mean, three solid movies in a row like that, and, and obviously they're way more than solid. Is. Uh, 
got to be Tarantino is the only other one. Tarantino. Right? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, hang on. Let's see. Paul Thomas Anderson. Surely. Yeah. Let's see what PTA. Um, Let's see what PTA. Well, he would have had he would have had Sydney and then and then uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Yeah, that's, that's pretty solid. That's incredible. I mean, I mean, obviously, obviously. <laughs> but I'm trying <laughs> to I'm trying to think. Like, like that's pretty solid. Yeah. Well, look, he did he did do Boogie Nights and Magnolia like back to back, ninety seven, ninety nine. That's really good. But you've really got those mm-hmm. three. There's not there's Fincher? not. Fincher. What Fincher? Fincher has got to be in there too. Like seven, the game. Fight Club. This fight. Oh, Fight right. Club's ninety nine. Yeah, that's the fight other. Fight Club's ninety nine. That's the other big one. That's the. That's very. Yeah, that's a. You know, that's insane too. Seven, the game. Fight. Club. I mean, Cohen's have have their unique little streak that they carve out always, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would put Michael Mann up there against anybody's streak that that decade, man. I mean, it's. Yeah, the two Cohen... definite masterpieces, and I wouldn't hate you if you called last the way he gets a masterpiece. No, no, I, I think the only actually look, the the title probably does have to go to the Coens, but that's because it goes Miller's Crossing ninety, Barton Fink ninety one, Hudsucker Proxy ninety four, Fargo Lebowski. That's a that's a yeah. big decade. Like that's they were just nonstop. They yeah. were just nonstop, and they do it. But the next one up there, I think you know for for a trio, you know we talked about. The, I mean, to be in that company. People stand Fincher. Mm-hmm. We're still talking about him because of Mindhunter. Obviously, Quentin with Once mm-hmm. Upon a Time in Hollywood, everyone's revisiting, including on my other show, The Take, where, you know, revisiting a favorite Tarantino's and you're talking about him. Paul Thomas Anderson is a guy who's just, you know, s- sort of sitting there as like Tarantino always talks about him as the guy that he measures himself against, you know, one of the greatest mm-hmm. other working mm-hmm. filmmakers. And then you got the Coens of the title. But Michael Mann. No one's talking about Michael Mann. Where's Michael Mann, love? And this is why this, there's... This is your mission. This is the... <laughs> well, this is uh, this is me going back off mission. And that's one of the big things. You know, we talked about Heat the last time we were together. I think what intrigued me so and kind of brought me back when I didn't think that I could talk about it is that this really unbelievable epic that is under two hours, this really unbelievable epic that is under two hours, that is a period epic, is the kind of blip of an anomaly on what is really like an oeuvre that's like contemporary crime, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, contemporary told stories and arguably is a complete, you know, when you look at other movies that are made in that decade or even since, it's like there are there are many other great period pieces, but do they do action? Do they do romance? Are they actually authentic, you know, authentic portrayals of the Native Americans and authentic portrayals of French and English and outlining, you know, all these great political machinations and all those things that all are probably pretty authentic and true to form all at the same time and under two hours and don't, like, overstay their welcome. They kind of don't exist. There's, like, Mohicans and then there's Dances with Wolves at four hours, you know? It's like that. And they don't. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no middle ground of, like, digestible sort of period movie action like this. And it's kind of the anomaly. That's true. It's, it's, and very much like a Nolan, I think, doing a Dunkirk. It's like man doing this is that kind of weird thing that that weird anomaly in his in his resume and even so this is this is it's like i feel like dunkirk is more of a christopher nolan movie than last of the mohicans is a michael mann movie if that makes any sense i don't think he like became a different filmmaker for that movie i just think that like i love dunkirk i thought it was the best movie that year but like nolan made the dunkirk movie that he was gonna make i feel like michael broke out of his shell a little bit to make the last of the mohicans movie he was gonna make you know what i mean yes 
It's like he's stretched, so, flexed out of it. Just like the insider is like a corp, um, sort of like a paranoia crime thriller in the seventies mold. Like how he wrote, completely slots into that mode of storytelling mm-hmm. versus his more mm-hmm. sort of classical storytelling. Whereas this is like, you know, it's it's all of the the modernized, authentic preparation that we know him for, but it's also just the big, beautiful, glorious, sweeping romance that. Mm-hmm. He never wanted to lose from that classic, you know, childhood memory mm-hmm. of what the thing could be. What, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to, like, get ahead of ourselves here because you'll have him on the last show. But, like, where was he at when he decided to that he was going to make this movie? Did you get into that with him? Like, why did have he decide? It, as we're talking right now, I haven't spoken to him yet. Oh, okay. He's coming. He's coming. Coming in hot. A few I days. You, I up. thought you had. I thought you had it like uh, in the bank there. No, okay. not in the can. So far, I've talked. I've spoken to Dante Spinotti. As we're recording this, I've spoken to Dante Spinotti, um, who gave me some great, great tidbits and insights. Um, I've spoken to Walter Chaw. Spoken to Brendan Hodges. And now speaking to you. And there's still a yeah. massive guest list to come up. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I haven't. I haven't had a chance to talk to him yet. I really. I really want to ask him about why that became his next choice, you know, because ultimately he makes Manhunter. Yeah. And from all, by all accounts, and this is one like sort of rumor thing I'd like to get into with him is like, by all accounts, they were going to give him Silence of the Lambs. Like Dino De Laurentiis mm-hmm. was like, well, here you go. And he was like, no, nope, I'm good. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move mm-hmm. on to this next thing. I'm going to go do Mahikins. Um And it's this massive movie that's completely different to what he's done before. And then he sort of goes back into Heat um, in 95. Um, but yeah, it's just a really... Really what was in the meantime there with between Manhunter? It was a LA takedown in there or something? Yeah, LA takedown. LA, uh, okay. LA takedown, I think. Let's have a look. Manhunter's 86. Yeah. And then it's six years before he's got a movie. So, yeah, it would have been. There's, other, been... Sh- there's other shows in there, I think. The, the beta of Heat. <laughs> yes. the, heat the Heat. The Heat beta. <laughs> yeah, so he's. Um, <laughs> He's doing Crime Story. He does Thief in um, 81. He's doing Crime Story up all the way to 88. He do- actually does in 89 his um, takedown. And then he's doing miniseries like Drug 89, Wars. 89, yeah. Miami Vice is 84 to 90. So that's that whole period he's sort of still producing and, and doing all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, then he, he rolls. Um, uh, I don't he, see how you come out of that streak and start doing Last of the Mohicans. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I want you to ask him, like, yeah. what, what the hell, dude? What, like, what, you came out of, like, silk suits on Miami Beach and and what would become the kind of, like, uber crime cool of heat with L.A. Takedown. Like, where do you get Chimney Rock <laughs> out of that? Like, that's kind of awesome. Yeah. And, and then it's not anywhere else. It's not anywhere. It's not even remotely anywhere else in his resume. That kind of period thing doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I, I kind of wanted to do another one or, or do same. a couple more. Like let's let's see the Michael Mann period trilogy. Oh, I would love that. Period I mean, we've, we've done the summer of seventeen fifty seven. Well, you know, actually, he he wanted to do, and I don't know if this is still like on his plate or what. Um, Hemingway. Uh, which Hemingway was he going to do? For, uh, for whom the bell tolls. For whom the bell tolls. Wow. He was going to do that um, like uh, 10 years ago. I know he was He was still talking about it. And he's also – there's this western that Eric Roth, Roth wrote called Comanche that yes. uh, 
I would love for him to finally get around to doing. So there you go. That could round out the period piece trilogy. Oh, there we go. Heming, Hemingway and a Western. <laughs> that's that that's my so, suggestion. That, <laughs> look, if we, if we can whiteboard this for you, Michael, it's Hemingway <laughs> and Matt, and there's your, there's your uh, period trilogy at the beginning of the United States, and uh, there we go. That's it. Chris? That'd be kind of awesome. All right, man. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming back Thank and joining you. me for this thing that I said I'd never do. I appreciate you uh, coming back. Glad you came time. back. <laughs> Glad you came back. Thanks for having me, man. You're welcome.